Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. This is Megan McKimmy. I'm Mark Carter. Today is lucky July 13th, and here are grain headlines. So the federal government announced last week uh, that they were going to provide funding for some new risk management tools research for Canadian farmers. Um, So this announcement was made on Lloyd Crow, a director from Grain Farmers of Ontario's Farm, um, and they announced some funding to go into research by a few different organizations. Soy Canada was one of them, and then Grain Farmers of Ontario also um, received funding for a feasibility study concerning revenue declines not currently covered by the current BRM programming. So we're excited to sort of get into that and see where that funding will go. And I know more robust business risk management planning was part of our election ask, and it's going to be a priority for grain farmers of Ontario going forward, and it already has been, of course. So we're happy to see this new announcement, um, certainly, like you said, in our coming from our election ask to see some movement on this. So Wheat Harvest 2018 is right around the corner. Uh, We received uh, an article from uh, Vicki Hilborn from Omafra's London Resource Centre about wheat harvest fires. Uh, She uh, will be publishing it. I believe it'll be out in Ontario Farmer at some point. Uh, Keep an eye out for it or contact Vicki for more information. Uh, She highlighted the issues that we had across the province last year with harvest and field fires throughout the summer. Wheat harvest in midsummer is always difficult because of the dry conditions, and with the way the weather's been this year, we're expecting it to be a big problem again. Uh, they tend to be more prevalent in the midsummer harvest time. Uh, just keep an eye out for all kinds of ignition sources. Uh, it could be something simple as a spark from a harvest machine or a pickup truck in the field, or even heat from a worn bearing. There's combustible materials everywhere in a field during harvest. There's residue buildup everywhere and residue on the field as well. The key steps that Vicky highlights that you need to develop a plan and always make sure it's written down and shared with all your staff as often as you can annually, anytime you add a new field or new equipment. She includes a lot of great tips about how to avoid fires, how to prepare, uh, what you need to do to be aware of what's going on and make sure that you aren't starting fires and how you react if there ever is one. You know, before you attempt to extinguish any fire, make sure you call 911 and follow any of their directions. Uh, so again, uh, keep an eye out for that article coming soon. And uh, if you have any more questions, contact Vicki Hilborn. She's out of the Yomafra London Resource Center. Great. And we are at the Honda Indy this week uh, with the big Growing Connections trailer. And if you haven't seen that trailer before, it's our public outreach uh, initiative where we go out to talk about what grain farming and what farmers are doing in the fields. But we're specifically focusing on ethanol. We think this is a really important aspect that we need to look at. 36% of Ontario corn actually goes into ethanol production. Um, And we want to get out and sort of bust those misconceptions around food versus fuel for the consumer. And it's in Toronto, and it's a good meeting place to talk more about this. Um, Honda Indy cars use E85, so there's a nice little tie-in there. Um, So we'll have uh, some of uh, our staff down there and and uh, a pretty cool car that has a a neat grain farmer's wrap on it. So you should uh, swing by and check it out if you're in the area. We have another big event coming up on Monday the 16th. That's next Monday. Uh, It's our first Grain Talk Research Day. It's in Elora. Uh, Megan, I know you're part of the team that's putting this event together. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? 
Yeah, so this will be the first one in this area, in the Elora Guelph area, and there'll also be an Ottawa one coming up in August. But uh, working along with the research department, and I think it's really important, um, we want our farmer members to get to see where the research dollars are going and how they're being spent. Um, So this is a great day if you have the time. It's a full-day bus tour. It'll start out at C&M Seeds, and then we'll travel over to the research station where we're going to look at um, the lysimeters, some long-term research trials uh, on tillage and rotation, um, as well as uh, in the afternoon, wheat breeding, soybean breeding, screening for malt barley. So there's a lot of great things to see, and I think it's a great opportunity to see where those research dollars are being spent. And up next, we'll have Dylan from Before the Plate. We are here with Dylan Schur, a producer from Before the Plate, a documentary coming out in August. Uh, And we are here to chat with you a little bit more about that. Um, So we've been seeing a lot about this on social media, um, a lot of buzz in the agriculture industry uh, about this. So if you want to just start us off about telling us a bit about what the movie and documentary is. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Before the Plate is essentially an attempt to try and help the modern-day urban consumer have a better understanding of what happens uh, on a modern farm, but you know more specifically Canadian farms that we um, have been following. And the way we're doing that um, through the documentary and the plot of the actual documentary itself is taking one plate of food um, and following each ingredient uh, on that plate of food all the way back to the farms they came from. Why did you think this was necessary to make into a movie? Um, it's kind of a roundabout story, but I, you know, I'm from the city and I grew up just outside Toronto and knew nothing about farming and had no family ever involved in agriculture or anything. So my farming understanding was uh, zero, to say the least. <laughs> and, um, you know, but funny enough, I had an interest in it from a young age and that was something that I really wanted to do was I was um, really interested in one day, hopefully, you know, running or starting my own farm and doing something like that but I mean as a as a young kid it was just something that interested me from you know spending time in the garden and stuff like that and but I didn't know what that meant and as I grew older it became very clear that there was a very large movement from the city and the areas that I grew up for quote-unquote a new kind of food and that was kind of what my call to action was that all came with, again, zero agricultural experience. And when I showed up at Guelph uh, for my first year, because I'm just finishing up my, or just finished my fourth year in agricultural business for at the University of Guelph, um, my perspective on things changed a lot. Um, one, from speaking to real farmers for the first time, <laughs> and two, um, getting a job on, on a farm and working on farms for the first time. So... Um, it started off with a, a video from a particular group that shall remain nameless um, showing the the evils of the dairy industry uh, while I was working on a dairy farm. And I didn't, that was the first time that I kind of took the argument a bit personally because I was on the agricultural side of the story for once. So that was one of those um, activist groups that like to do the exposés? Yeah. And, and well, I mean, first off, there's there's two kinds of things. One is you know, things are taken out of context, um, which the industry leans on a lot, and a lot of it's true. The, the other is, you know, we do have to acknowledge um, isol- very isolated, terrible incidents that the industry does not support, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but to paint the entire industry like that is completely ridiculous and, and unfair. Um, but just to give an example, in this particular video, is uh, 
they said that the cows were being milked so much they were bleeding, and they showed the cows walking out of the parlor with red teat dip coming off. And, you know, that's an example of something that nobody, if they don't understand that cows get dipped after they're done being milked um, with this red liquid yeah. that any any concerned consumer might think that would be blood, right? So I saw that, and I was just like, okay, enough's enough. And um, I, I keep saying that before the point is proof that you can have not enough sleep, too much Tim Hortons, and think that you can make a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks and, like it was very successful, so. Yeah, so far so good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so I decided that I was going to take some pictures and, um, you know, maybe take a little video. And then my idea was to do kind of my inspiration really was was Andrew Campbell and his Farm 365 because um, he came to speak at Guelph and, and he's just one of those amazing industry leaders. And um, the only difference was I thought, well, maybe you know, with all my friends growing up in the city and all my connections that I had on Facebook and Instagram and that had were in the same position as me, had never really seen a farm before, maybe I could help bridge the gap because we all know that we have a tough time getting outside of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that would be a good attempt at it. And then the, the story developed further and, and here we are two, two and a bit years later. So when you said that the people that you know in the city were wanting a new kind of food, what do people mean by that? Um, you know, as we know, the labels have kind of run rampant, um, and that's basically what it comes down to is, um, there is a place in the market for everything. Um, but I don't necessarily agree with the intimidation and fear that goes along with that. Again, keep in mind that I came from a place where, where that was the, my dream was to start, you know, a farm that provided food with, now the, what we can look at is every conceivable label under the sun, right? You know, in the city, it just seems like um, free-range, grass-fed, uh, organic, whatever it might be, you just slap on every single term and label and it gets better and better and better, um, which is, again, each one of those things is important, but that's not that's not what <laughs> the industry is all about, and that's that's not um, necessarily what the consumer thinks it is either. Um, so we got to be very careful on, on what kind of food we're growing and providing and also what the consumer um, is looking for. And how did you, you mentioned you took an agriculture, or you're currently, I guess, taking an agriculture business degree. Did you go right into that, just hoping to get more involved in agriculture? Or sort of what was your direction that you were planning to go with post-secondary there? Yeah, so just finished up my, my fourth year at Guelph. Um, and, you know, it was a bit unclear how I would fit into the industry at the beginning. And it's, I think, slowly starting to kind of become a bit more clear now that, you know, I might be involved in communicating agriculture rather than um, being involved in primary production. But, um, yeah, I didn't know. You know, my, my goal was to go to Guelph to, funny enough, quote unquote, learn how to be a farmer, right? Um, yeah. Very quickly realized that that doesn't happen <laughs> because, you know, you're not going there for hands-on experience or time specifically working on a farm. I had to do that myself and go and, and work summers on a dairy farm or whatever it was. So, you know, there was some great content that we learned, um, but it was a very business-heavy course. But, you know, f- for me, the the biggest takeaways from that 100% were, is the, is the now network of of farmers and people in the industry that I get to work with and speak with every single day who, you know, I kind of come from a place of um, being naive and I know that and they know that and, you know, we all have a good time and I just 
text them and say, hey, listen, stupid question. Uh, and, you know, I have that kind of creative freedom because uh, I know that I don't know everything. Um, far from it. And and my friends definitely know that I don't know everything. So I often say uh, that myself when I'm doing things for the Ontario Green Farmer magazine that I'm in charge of here is I admit I don't know everything there is to know, even specifically about grain farming. So when you're talking about all farming, I don't think that anybody knows everything that there is to know. I sure, but we, I, know, I know particularly little, so. <laughs> but I think that's great. I think we're talking in agriculture a lot about um, trying to get more people involved. And so it's very, I think your story is really interesting that how, how do we get people that might not necessarily have an agriculture background into agriculture and working and telling stories, so. Yeah. I think the answer to that strictly is context, right? Yeah. Um, the only reason that my, um, I'm just going to say negative thoughts on the agricultural industry were formed is because they had no context. If yeah. I, um, if I purchase something, let's say, or let's say I see a label that says um, free of antibiotics, you know, that just seems good. <laughs> but well, wh- what context is that? You know, what is the alternative? And the, the question just got posed to me on the first uh, livestock farm I went to, and the the farmer just said, "What happens when an animal gets sick?" And that that's not a thought that any consumer ever has, right? They're just buying a label or or, or a mentality, but there's there's zero thought process as to what happens down the line. So um, that was kind of a trap that I fell into. Um, and I think the question that we need to pose to the public is, um, what's the alternative? And uh, you know, there we're working as industry, obviously, to reduce. Um, the usage of antibiotics, for example, and use them as responsibly as possible. And all the technologies that we have available to us need to be used in the best possible format. But, you know, to make a blanket statement of, for example, no um, antibiotics doesn't necessarily make any sense. And um, again, what are the repercussions of that? I guess we face the same thing within the grain industry when a lot of the labeling is non-GMO. And we always say, well, what's the problem with GM? Because it allows farmers to use less, you know, crop inputs and, you know, increase production, deal with things like drought or other weather factors. And so we say, you know, there is no, from the studies, there's no health concerns or anything like that. But then there's also the labeling of products as non-GM when they don't even contain GM ingredients. Of course. Uh, and, you know, and, and you know, I, I, the, the industry kind of is a bit upset about that. I mean, I personally, it, I mean, it frustrates me, but again, consumers don't know what a GMO is. So, you know, when we often say, well, there's no GM alternative, they, they're just looking for a stamp that verifies that there's nothing in there, regardless if they know if it even existed or not. Um, and I think that's, uh, and it's funny you bring that up. I think that's a place where we need to um, take a further look at ourselves and realize how much um, we know. And I think the agricultural industry often doesn't give themselves enough credit as to how much knowledge they have on this stuff. And the fact that it's just kind of seen as, oh, of course, we know that somebody should know that there's no, um, you know, GM wheat or broccoli or whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just not seen that way. So, I mean, the, the fact of the issue is the fact that there's a fear around it in the first place. Um, but yeah, I mean, it goes on and on and on as to, but it, as, as to why it's there and people and like you said, what's the alternative? And it's not just that it's fine, you know. It's something that we need to really drive home as to um, why these tools are being used and what does it look like if we don't use it. 
So you mentioned how you have uh, talked to Andrew Campbell. He was very much an inspiration to you. We know that for the movie, you also spoke with Hugh Simpson, a beekeeper. We actually had mm-hmm. the pleasure of speaking with him on our podcast last week. Um, Hugh is like my favorite dude ever. <laughs> <laughs> he's very, he's definitely very informative. He knows a lot about beekeeping. It was a great conversation that we had. We definitely learned a lot. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of the other people that uh, you have in the movie, some of the other farmers that uh, helped you along? Uh, yeah, the list is endless, but, um, you know, we, we went to um, eight different farms and then each of those also involved processing aspects as well. So, you know, there are many stops along the way from names that people wouldn't know off the top of their head from, you know, Kawartha Dairy, obviously, um, which is a cool little bragging piece that we got to go there. <laughs> and And then tons of really cool farms. Um, from an, from a production standpoint, like, you know, for someone never having been in a greenhouse before going to a massive greenhouse operation and seeing what that was like or mm-hmm. seeing really cool innovative things that, that I didn't even know existed. Um, so there's kind of that nerdy, cool, techie aspect <laughs> of it. And then there's also the people, right? And, you know, Hugh um, is a great guy to be around and, and I spent a lot of time talking to him um, about lots of different things, you know, related to the movie or otherwise. Um, But, you know, the one story I'll bring up is like our opening segment in the film is potatoes. And um, we had some issues trying to find a potato processor and then follow it back when in the planning stages. And then eventually we managed to get it figured out, but it was like middle of April and we had to get planting. And it was a super last minute that we went, or we had to try and find this potato farmer. And we got an email while we were actually out filming uh, our sunflower segment and it was the processing company Earthfresh that we uh, featured in the film and they said you know listen we have a grower that uh, we mentioned your project to him and and he, it seems like he'd be really interested in in having you guys uh, you know come over and film um, here's his phone number and I just called him while we were literally out doing a shoot <laughs> which usually these things take you know months of planning to figure it out and he just picked up the phone and he and I said, when are you finish planting potatoes? He says, tomorrow. I said, can we come today? And he said, sure. <laughs> and he took the time out of his day to show us around and was, you know, the friendliest, coolest guy. Hmm. And, um, you know, within, within 45 minutes of introduction, he was opening his doors to showcase his operation. And I think that's a metaphor for what the industry um, is for a lot of, uh, a lot of the part, um, but also what we should strive for and also what consumers need to think of. Yeah. And if they have a question, you know, can call up guys like Gary, for example, who I'm referring to. Yeah. And, you know, also understand that it's a business and it's busy and, you know, you, people don't just always have time to just show you around. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that there's very little to, to be hiding, I think, is, is a, a key takeaway from that. Sorry, and I think it's interesting too when you talk about the potato farmer. I noticed the other day on a bag of chips where it said that the potatoes were farm-grown potatoes as though that was like this big natural thing that they wanted to highlight. But when you say about the alternative, like consumers need to ask, well, what's the alternative? My question was, well, where else would potatoes be grown? Well, I see it, you know, like, and again, I'm trying to refrain from using certain uh, company names, but a certain restaurant was like, you know, farm-raised chicken. And I'm like, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> where else? Where else do chickens get raised? <laughs> yeah, I guess again, in the backyard. That, that in Toronto, step, right? right? People raise their chickens in the backyard, mm-hmm. and then sure, but when they get tired of them, they get rid of them. 
Well, exactly that, and you know, what distinguishes that from not being a farm, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> what is a farm? And it's you know, so, and also, yeah, it's it's that it's that second question I was talking about is farm raised chicken. People go, oh yeah, that sounds good, and no one ever asks, well, where else would it come from? <laughs> yeah. So I've kind of been following along with this and seeing on social media, um, you've worked with some of the other agriculture business students um, that have been, like we've worked with some of them with our Greens in Action program. Um, how did you first approach, or I guess, how did that all get started when you first started talking to your colleagues at, at the Ontario Agriculture College and pitching this idea? Um, how did that all go? Uh, it was a lot more casual than you probably want to think it was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, so shortly after I... I had this experience in the in the dairy parlor and I was I took a picture to kind of show how clean it was and I was really proud of uh of the farm I was working on after seeing this this video and if you scroll back actually to the first post and before the plate it's actually um a post of it was a super hot day and I was holding up a box of Chapman's ice cream with the little Canadian dairy symbol in the barn and all the cows were there and I took that picture and I posted it up and kind of commented about you know, um, the animal welfare and things like that and, and posted it. And I, the first post got like 12 likes when it was posted or whatever. And, um, I, I literally just sent my friends a text because I, I hadn't thought of the plate and I hadn't thought of the following back. And I just wanted to go to a farm with a camera and see, you know, kind of what we could do. And it started off as this very, um, kind of amateur walk and talk, um, rustic thing that people started following along as just kind of, oh, what's Dylan doing today and where's before the plate going? And then, you know, this past year is when I brought on the full film crew and it became very polished and, and um, got to a place where we could put it in, you know, it, it submit to film festivals and so on. But um, yeah, I sent, the first guy who, you know, is very involved and I'm sure you probably know him is Eric Prelaz, mm-hmm. um, was the first text I sent and just, because he's a good friend of mine and I said, hey, you know, would you mind if we came came and uh, took some footage and he goes, yeah, sure, no problem. And he told me that uh, Amanda lived down the road and, you know, we started off there and then went to her farm afterwards and that kind of was the beginning of it all. That's interesting. Yeah, I think I saw both um, both Eric and Amanda were in on our Grains in Action program in the same year and I think that's what first uh, I first saw them on social media. I'm like, oh, what's this interesting uh, project coming up? So it was great to see how it's really evolved and come along. Um, so how did you first, cause you start at canoe, the restaurant in Toronto, how, how yep. did you choose that restaurant and how did that come about? Like if there was a restaurant lottery, I think we won it basically is yeah. when it comes <laughs> down to that is, um, there's a couple different elements and angles there. One is we were just searching for a restaurant, right? So before the plate already was kind of well underway, um, before we had picked a restaurant, um, and we were, for me, strategically, I was saying, okay, you know, again, how do I make sure that this film doesn't only appeal to farmers? Because then I've failed, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because that's kind of where we are now. So I said, okay, well, where's the other side of the food story? And, and the culture around food is definitely foodies, celebrity chef status, all those sorts of things. You know, it's become um, quite the quite the buzz. Um you know, MasterChef Canada, everybody kind of watches that stuff. So finding a restaurant that had the credibility and its own following and kind of everybody knows and adds a 
a level of um, authenticity, Canoe is definitely up there. I mean, everybody in Toronto knows Canoe. The next piece of that was kind of what message are we trying to set? And, you know, there's a lot of... Um, we took a lot of inspiration from Chef's Table, which is a really cool Netflix series. But there was, a, there was a particular episode on Chef's Table that I wasn't too happy with that was a very, very expensive restaurant. And the, the narrative that kind of came out of it was, unless you can afford my amazing food that I picked myself in my own backyard, the food you're getting at the grocery store is no good. And um, that kind of bugged me. Again, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's basically what, what I took away from it. And to take a restaurant like Canoe that is very expensive and is um, for you know, definitely uh, an upscale clientele and to really peel away the plate and take it to the roots of, you know, great Ontario um, farmers and farms and show also the versatility of those ingredients and how, yes, they're taking um, a great potato and turning it into something absolutely amazing for a true dining experience. Um, You know, people like you and I can go and buy those potatoes as well. So we were really trying to bring up the um, understanding of quality and pride in Canadian ingredients, um, but also kind of further showcase that accessibility aspect uh, for the average person if they want to, you know, buy those ingredients and cook at home. Um, And then the next piece of it, again, all by chance, is, you know, Chef John Horn, who is uh, like no other. Besides the fact that the guy can cook uh, pretty much anything I've ever seen in my life and the food is amazing. Um, one of the perks of working with a great chef is you get the taste of food. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, not bad. Um, is he, he is the character we're looking for. You know, he's very open-minded, very rustic, down-to-earth, asks the right questions, um, understands the the web of, of uh, different outcomes, to say the least, I think, and what we were talking about. You know, what's the alternative? He often asks those questions, and, and I think left the consumer or uh, took them on a really great journey of discovery on the film and, and left a lot of um, self-reflecting questions at the end for them. And I think the film does that. You know, I don't want anybody to walk away from it feeling like they've been told what to do because mm-hmm. um, that's really not what we're going for, right? It's, it's, um, it's like getting somebody on the right direction, right? It, it's asking those questions. Um, it's what does this mean? Does Is that right for me? Do I want to support a... Uh, non-GMO, you know, purchasing, um, do, do is that the kind of stuff I want to purchase? Or do I see the value in it and I want to do something else? You know, is organic right for me or is it not right for me? Um, you know, all those things are fine, but you need to understand, obviously, what you're doing before you can, um, before you can put your money behind it. Great. And do you have uh, any really eye-opening experience while you've been filming before the plate? Um, you know, I get that question a lot and I think the, the, the good answer is yes, but before, before we started filming. So my like shock and awe as to how much I didn't know and how much is out there and how advanced the industry is, um, happened probably a year before we started filming because that was when I started school. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and went on dairy tour for the first time and went on, uh, crop tours for the first time and did all those things. So I definitely had a personal learning experience. Um, I was very comfortable w- with the fact that um, I was, yeah, I was comfortable with with 
what I was trying to show and the messaging behind it, obviously by the time I started before the plate. The, you know, amazing experiences, like I said, are, are the really cool things of that happened along the way of, oh, I didn't know that, and um, wow, I can't believe, you know, how big this farm is, or I can't believe uh, the technology they have. But as far as, like, um, you know, eye-opening experiences, um, yeah, I've had more than I can count, but, you know, most were before we started the project. Yeah. Um, so you, I know that this documentary you were aiming to get this at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I'm sure there's a big process to that. Um, how's that all going, and where are you at with that? Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, we submitted uh, about two or three weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, and that's it. Uh, so <laughs> now it's... You're the waiting game? Yeah, cross your fingers and, and wait. Um, they'll let us know by August 10th, they said. Okay. Uh, the latest, so hopefully it's before then, because you know we'd like to know sooner rather than later. Um, it is a tough game, <laughs> you know. We are definitely underdogs of underdogs getting in there with the budget we had, mm-hmm. um, competing against you know essentially Hollywood films getting in there, and also TIFF really isn't a documentary focused film festival, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we will be very lucky if we get in there, and I'll be very happy. Um, that being said. You know, the success of this project is not dependent on TIFF by any stretch of the imagination. It's going to be the distribution. Will it be available on Netflix? Will people be able to watch it at home? Um, how many people get to see this that would not have had the opportunity to go to a farm? So all those other metrics to me are way more important than whether we get into TIFF or not. Although, um, if we were to have some bragging rights, TIFF would definitely be <laughs> be up there. And when you mention Netflix, I find that most of the farm-focused documentaries that you can see there are more of the negative ones like you say where they're like the exposés or the you know anti-gmo or the you know go organic type documentaries do you think that with netflix having that sort of vein of movies that yours goes against that that you have more of a challenge getting on there yeah i mean there is uh you know there's news about that happening with um you know some other films that have kind of come out um Food Evolution being one, which apparently had some struggles with Netflix. It is a concern of mine, but again, there's enough streaming services out there that it will get somewhere. Um, but I I agree 100%. Um, the question is, you know, what kind of profile are they trying to portray? Um, I would like to think that they're more neutral. Um, and the only thing I can say about that is, again, it's just the traction, right? So yeah, Cowspiracy's on Netflix and Food Inc. is on Netflix, but also there's a cool little documentary called Farmland on Netflix, which, again, which goes into what modern farms are like and all sorts of things like that. Um, so it's there. The, the question is who, who has seen it, and the numbers aren't as strong, and it's very difficult to, um, you know, the conversation around a drink is not going to be Oh my God! Have you seen this movie? Uh, agricultural seems agriculture seems to be going just fine. Yeah. Um, you know, it's gonna be. Oh my God! Have you seen this movie? You won't believe what's in our food, or you won't believe what they're doing. You know. So that's the stuff that spreads conversation. Um, the the reason that or or how we want to try and take advantage of that is, you know, there definitely is that kind of surprise factor in ours as far as like, wow, I didn't know that all these ingredients came from, you know, off the 400 highway when I drive up to the cottage. So there's definitely mm-hmm. that local aspect to it. Um, And then also the fact that it's relatable. I think a lot of the other farm documentaries, if you just see corn growing, um, it's kind of like, okay, that's cool, but how does that relate to me? 
Um, and the fact that there's a plate of food which people can relate to, I think really helps get the conversation going in that direction and also really has that level of interest because, um, you know, most people I speak to don't understand that corn that you see growing majority of the time is grain corn and not sweet corn. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, wow, that's a lot of corn on the cob growing that I see driving everywhere. And yeah. We've I, heard stories and, that people have pulled off the road and gone into a field and picked corn, not realizing that it wasn't sweet corn. Of course, a right? Disappointing. And, and I, I was part of that, you know, not long ago at all. Yeah. Um, but now it seems hard to go back to thinking that kind of way, obviously, right? It's like, well, how could I ever have thought, you know, I see a combine, like, obviously that's going for not corn on the cob but then now it's like okay well people don't even yeah uh, the the little story that i'll tell is that someone posted farm abcs and it was like um you know sort of apple and ball and things like that well apple was the first one but it was like bale and things that they changed it to like you know learning the abcs for farm kids and and they got to c and there was a combine and my sister who's like was 18 at the time um was going through, I said, hey, you know, see if you can take a look at these and figure these out. And she looks at it and she goes, tractor doesn't start with C. <laughs> so, I mean, there's definitely, you know, some, some learning to be done. And she's my sister and I'm involved in this project. So yeah. somebody who has nothing to do with farming definitely uh, needs some, some more background. So when are you hoping to get this movie launched to the public? So our own little kind of private um, premiere for people who supported the project and so on is actually on August 5th. Um, I would be promoting that today, except for the fact that we sold out of tickets like a week ago. <laughs> so very that's happy excellent. about that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a bright side. Um, we are doing a waiting list though, if anybody does want to look at tickets. <laughs> um, so that is kind of the first time it will be shown a little bit. We will know more about where it can be found after um, we hear back from TIFF after we start dealing with distribution because that is really going to pave the way as to where it goes. Um, you know, if we get a licensing deal with Netflix, for example, then that limits it to that avenue. If we get um, a distribution deal that says it's going to go on TV, then that goes that way. So the answer at this point is unclear. Um, all I can say is that within the next year or so, it will become widely available to the public in, in some form or another. So can people check your website, follow you on Twitter? What's the best way to stay up to date on what's happening? Yeah, so definitely um, there's a couple different things. Uh, Instagram is definitely our most active social media because, you know, we're a very visual kind of project and there's lots of behind-the-scenes photos and um, cool posts we put up on Instagram. Um, we do have Twitter and Facebook, obviously, is uh, a great place as well for us and it's all just before the plate. Um, but there's also... Uh, cool experience uh, for desktop and laptop computers. If you actually go to um, beforetheplate.com, uh, we have a plate of food that you can click on the ingredients and actually go back and follow the ingredients back to the plate um, in kind of like a little uh, virtual farm tour kind of thing. Um, so those have little sneak peeks and previews on there as well. Great, Dylan. Well, I just want to say thank you, and we're going to keep following you on social media and see where everything goes, and uh, it looks like the project's been going really well so far. So thanks for chatting with us today on Grain Talk, and uh, we look forward to seeing how everything goes and launches. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Coming up next on Grain Talk, we speak with Marcus Hurl, 
chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario. Today we are joined by our chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario, Marcus Hurl, and you've had a pretty busy time in the last few weeks, um, and I guess farmers are seeing across uh, the province that wheat harvest has started, and it's been a bit of a, a dry season, so we might uh, see how that's impacting yields. Can you comment on that? Yes, of course. Um, as I had some dialogue with some uh, farmers, certainly from the uh, southwestern part of the province, they noticed that some of the uh, uh, wheat yields that are coming off at the present time are impacted somewhat by the uh, weather that we have experienced through the province and uh, certainly not significant rainfall that uh, we got through the uh, grain field period. So we'll see how that's going to translate into yield into other commodity crops that are being grown. And um, I think we chatted a little bit about the upcoming board meeting last time you were on our podcast, but now um, you were just there last week. So how did that board meeting go? Yeah, the board meeting certainly went uh, actually quite well. Uh, We uh, did have our regular board meeting agenda items that uh, we cover off every every month. And uh, we um, did have some uh, more intense discussion on some of the BRM uh, programming uh, aspects because as we are looking forward into the uh, FPT uh, meeting coming up in Vancouver where the uh, Ag Ministers from across the, uh, the country meet, uh, we want, want to make sure that our emphasis still remains on the uh, review process for the uh, BRM programs that was initiated last year. And uh, as we do every year, uh, we do go out to uh, another district uh, around the province to uh, that hosts our board for, uh, for the board meeting and for a barbecue. So it gave us a chance to actually head out into the uh, Prince Edward County at uh, Lloyd Crow's farm. And uh, we got to meet some of the uh, delegates, industry people, and uh, farmers from around the uh, the area. And uh, certainly gave us a chance also to see some of the uh, crops that are being grown in that specific place. And while you were out there, um, there was an announcement made at uh, Lloyd Crow's farm about some federal funding for grains and oilseed. Yes, um, uh, Neil Ellis, uh, the MP from uh, that specific riding, he uh, came out and uh, did an announcement for the funding that we had um, applied for uh, a while ago uh, of $158,000 for our initiative that we um, did on a feasibility study uh, concerns of about revenue declines that we that we see in the countryside to find new business risk management uh, programs for our members and uh, those dollars uh, were certainly put to good use and uh, we do already have some of those findings at the present time and as I mentioned, you've been pretty busy. So recently you were in Brazil for the International Oilseed Producer Dialogue. And, and can you tell us a bit more about what that is and why we were there? Yes, uh, this is actually an organization that uh, is from uh, different uh, producing countries that send representatives uh, to um, a site anywhere around the world that Uh, it's being hosted at and uh, it gives a chance to have some dialogue about 
some issues, regulatory issues, trade, uh, even just dialogue amongst countries of uh, what they're facing and uh, what their production methods are. And this year it was in uh, in Brazil, uh, Kuabai, and uh, it gave us a new perspective, at least personally, it gave me a perspective of how big Brazil is in the, the big scheme of uh, soybean production. And um, what I got out of that dialogue was we are a player amongst the world's largest producers, but um, we do have a lot of input into some of the strategies that are being taken from the large producing countries. You take US, Brazil, Argentina, uh, they sometimes have ideas that uh, might impact trade uh, in a significant way. And uh, we do have our chance in those uh, dialogue sessions to voice our opinions of how they're doing it and uh, why they're doing it. So um, it certainly gives gave me an opportunity also to meet some of my colleagues that uh, we often say are, are our competitors. But on the other side, they're in, in the game of grain producing the same as we are and looking to make a dollar at what they're doing. Thank you. And I just want to say thanks for being on the podcast again this week, Marcus. And if any of our listeners have a question they would like us to ask Marcus in an upcoming podcast, you can email us at graintalk at gfo.ca. Thanks for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. If you would like to connect with us, including through our newsletter, market reports, or upcoming events, visit gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests, Dylan Shear and Marcus Hurl for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode of Grain Talk, Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and anywhere you download podcasts.